morning, Crossway. It's glad to be with you guys this morning as we enter into um, time for the word. You know, it's actually, I think, I guess, last month marked um, me and Trisha's first year here. It's been pretty significant for us. It's gone by kind of quick. I remember the introduction, um, besides all the Texas jokes, uh, I think that pastors are like, what can we pray for you for as a congregation? And the first one was actually for Trisha's finishing her school. So for a while, everyone still thought Trisha wins in school. She's done, by the way. Um, but uh, the other one was one that I knew was going to be a struggle for me. And it was, uh, I think I asked to pr- that you guys would pray that I wouldn't try to impress you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because it's, it's true. It's a, <laughs> it's a weird thing because like when transitions happen, whether you've had a, a job change or promotion or you go to a new community or church, there is some element of trying to prove yourself. And so those first couple of weeks or months or even a year can be kind of interesting. And as we get into this text, um, there is definitely a big transition in John chapter 13 that happens. Um, a lot of times in the Bible, they kind of begin it with that word now. You know, if you look at your very first word in the verse one, it says now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. There's this big transition that's happening in the book of John where all up to this time, Jesus has been, been performing these amazing signs to prove that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you can have life in his name, right? And we even saw, you know, if you guys remember the wedding of Cana, healing all these different people, and then recently, the last one we read about was the resurrection of Lazarus, right? And so all up until that time, Jesus has had this kind of coined phrase that my, my hour has not yet come. That's what he tells Mary when she's like, we don't have no wine, Jesus. He's like, Mary, chill out. It's not the time. Or when they're trying to arrest him because his message is bringing too much resistance to the agenda of that day, it, the text says that his hour had not yet come, so he kind of slipped through the crowds and, and, and escaped with his life, right? And so it now comes when the hour, that hour referring to the whole point of why Jesus has come to this earth to go to the cross, now that it's come, what is Jesus going to say or do? Because, spoiler alert, it's going to be like another six chapters before that actually happens, right? So, it's interesting that now that this hour has finally come, we are at the scene of right before the feast of the Passover, right? Another thing that John's trying to do that's kind of clever, but... Jesus, in verse 4, rises from supper, lays aside his garments, takes a towel, and gets down on his knees and washes his disciples' feet. You would think that likewise for people who maybe have a new transition or a job or whatever the case may be, if you're announcing you're going for office or something, like you would want to you know, show that you're capable. You want to show that you're competent. You want to show that there's a reason why you have the position that you have. And it's interesting that when Jesus is like, I am the king, and they announced that in chapter 12, right, this triumphal entry, you would think that Jesus is like, and I think all the Jews would think he would come with power, right? That's always the theme of the, of the Gospel of John. You would think that Jesus would come announcing his reign with a rod, with a scepter, with incredible, elaborate things that would impress. But instead, Jesus in our text this morning, he takes the form of a servant. He takes the form of a servant. Um, 
back in that time, uh, there was a little bit of, it wasn't as cleanly, I would say, probably as now. Like, I don't know about you guys, ever since all that, all the news, I've been like, <laughs> I've been doing all the sanitizer, I've been washing my hands way longer than I ever have. I read a video of CNN's like 30 seconds, I'm like, 30 seconds? What have I been doing all my life? Right, it's just like, I, like there's a level of, when you were a Jew back in that time, right, you probably wore open toe shoes if you had shoes at all. So you're picking up a lot, a lot of dirt. And so for a, someone to wash your feet is like just a no-no. It's like culturally taboo. It's just, it don't, it don't happen, right? And much less, right, like even the Jews in that day, even if you were like on the same kind of like, if you were a peer, you would not do this for one another, right? The Jewish people having a little bit of racism, they were like, we wouldn't even let our own servants do it. We would make a Gentile servant do it. Only they are lowly enough to wash our feet, right? That was the idea of that day. And I was actually going to post, I was telling the youth, I was going to post, I'm not going to name who the youth is. I, I told all the youth who it was, though. Uh, but during our retreat, if you, you know, you, you know, in Asian households, I guess you don't usually wear your shoes in the house. I guess that's normal, right? But I'm also just a person that never walks around barefoot. I just, I don't know why that is about me. But this person did, and he picked up a lot by the end of a tree. <laughs> and it was so dirty, and I, I took a picture. And I was like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this in a couple weeks. And he smiled, and we took the picture. I'll, we'll post that on the youth Instagram this week. But um, more than it being hygienic, there was this, it wasn't just about cleanliness in the sense of physical. For a superior or someone with prestige, someone they would call rabbi, someone they would call teacher, to do this was culturally just, it just shouldn't happen, right? So do y'all see the scene? It's like Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, the king of Israel, the savior of the world, the lamb of God, all these beautiful things. Right when he announces my time has come, he gets down on his knees and washes the disciples' feet. It's so counterintuitive to everything that our culture disciples us to do, right? And um, it speaks to a really important idea that even though Jesus is physically washing the disciples' feet, I think it points to a deeper cleansing, a deeper cleansing. Um, I don't know if you guys knew this about me, but before we came to Crossway, um, when I was wrestling with my life um, about what I was going to do, um, I ended up working for my friend who was a dentist uh, in Thousand Oaks. Great drive. I can finally say I can relate with you guys in traffic. Like, I, I, it was long. I had to listen to a lot of podcasts and listen to the same music over and over. But one of the benefits when you work for someone that provides a service, like if you ever work for the food industry, you probably get like free sandwiches or whatever the case may be. I got free cleanings. It was great, you know? And uh, the first couple of times, though, it was crazy because if you, you know, in the same way that if you have something in your house that needs cleaning and you don't touch it for, the longer you don't touch it, the dirtier it gets, right? So I, I, I guess I didn't go to the dentist a lot. And um, I had this free cleaning, and my friend, being that we were like, you know, we, we knew each other. We went to college together in Texas, and we both moved out here. Didn't know we were going to move out here together. But uh, he was, like, walking me through the process of that. And I, I knew it was going to be a sermon illustration because before I moved to L.A., like, we had boba and milk tea and coffee in Houston, but I don't think I had it as good as here. And I lived in Roland Heights, which is a boba stop on every single exit, right? And so I, I, I downed like three to four a week, like straight up. A lot of sugar. Then I read an article about diabetes and I chilled out. But 
three to four times a week. Like I was getting that fresh milk tea with boba, no sweetener adjustment. I was just excited, right? Loved it. I even wrote Yelp reviews. I don't even Yelp review, okay? But all it did was add so many <laughs> stains on my teeth. And I, I just remember, like, when I went there and I sat under the chair. By the way, I was a front desk person, so I used to call people and try to beg them to come. So I knew how it was, it was scary. But when I was sitting under the chair, he was like, he, he, you know, he, you know, they do the brush and stuff. And I was like, he's like, John, man, whoa, like, there's a lot here. And I was like, you're not supposed to tell me that. And, and, he can't, and he's like, he, you know, the real cleaning that happens when we talk about deep cleaning is the amount of time that Dennis spends scraping, right? It's not about the brushing. Everyone get the brush. You know, it's for the, for the benefit of the dentist not to smell your breath. It's for the benefit of you to, you know, be trained how to brush properly through every little nook and cranny. But he was telling me, he's like, he's scraping and scraping, and he pulled it off. He's like, look at this, John. I was like, oh, my God. That was on my tooth. Like, and he's like, just the right front one, right in the middle. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And over time, I was like, couldn't we just, like, have bleached this and done all this stuff? He's like, true, but, you know, Really, the real cleaning that happens is when the dentist takes out the stains because there are certain things that no matter how much you brush, you brush, the dentist needs to come in, get his tool, scrape off the stuff you can't get to. Right? I think that when Jesus, when he walks and he, he washes his disciples' feet, right, he's showing them an example that we're going to get to a little bit later. But even when he does it, right, there's such a taboo thing culturally that Peter initially is like, yo, Jesus, this don't happen. Like, stop, please. Like, please don't embarrass me, right? You as the rabbi should not be doing this to me. And then Jesus says, where is the verse? Y'all see it? I can't find it. Here we go. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What does Jesus mean? He's like, Peter, if I don't wash you, like, you're not just physically unclean. You, you, there's something inside you that isn't going to be set free. There's something deeper cleansing that won't happen. You need to be washed by me, right? And Peter's so funny, we all laugh. Peter's like, oh, um, if that's the case, then wash my head and wash my feet, Jesus. And then Jesus has this remark back. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, right? He's saying that, you know, even when you shower, you're you going to get dirt on you again, you know. In the same way, like, we come to church, we confess our sins and receive the forgiveness again. But make no mistake, those who come, confess their sin, their need for a Savior, and put their trust in Jesus, if that's you in this room, you have to hear, Jesus says, you are completely clean, spiritually, inwardly, the deeper clean. And you are clean. That's how he emphasizes it. I've had, uh, I remember when I first was going to seminary, uh, one of the professors was like, how many of you would say in this room that you have a sinful nature right now? And you know, to some degree, we do. But I remember raising my hand. You know, there's a couple other people. I didn't feel so alone. It's like a theological test and a bunch of theologians, and I was kind of scared. And then he said, I think you guys need to hear the gospel. I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? He's like, and he quoted Galatians 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does this mean? That if you are a believer in Christ, 
we can say in Galatians 2.20, shout out the Bible study, okay? I have been crucified with Christ, which means the old self, the me that was born, darkened in my understanding, and a slave to sin, an opposing God, has died with Christ, and a new one has risen. You are completely clean. I think even as we sing this song, we got to claim, you are, or we are who God says we are. I am who God says I am, not who I say I am, not who other people say I am, according to their standards. But Jesus says here, if that's you, you are completely clean. More than a sinner, I believe biblically, even though we still have sins in our bodies that we carry on, Jesus says more than that, you have to see yourselves as those who have been cleansed by the Savior. And so in a lot of ways, I want I think for those of us who maybe in this room are struggling, maybe there's a season of just a lot of different doubts or even sins that you, you're just tired of fighting and it seems to not have victory in those things, whether it's something you looked at online, whether it's something that you just can't get rid of, maybe it's just this bitterness that won't seem to resolve itself, or just a tension that just never leaves I think Jesus wants you to hear, come, receive what I say about you. Receive my gift and hear that you are clean. That your status before God is good. You've been justified. On the flip side of that, you know, every time preachers, we, we, we try to come up with all this stuff, in the end of the day, I think all of our messages are similar to, I think, this because in a lot of ways, for those who are struggling, you need assurance that God loves you. Simple as it is, Jesus loves me, yes, I know, the Bible tells me so, but like, at the end of the day, is there a deep knowledge that that's true? Yes. But on the flip side, even in this text, he says what? You are clean, but not every one of you. Y'all know who he's talking about, right? Judas. Weird picture that Jesus, knowing what Judas is going to do, still washes his feet. He says, not every one of you. And I think the warning for those of us who are comfortable, that's just generally the, the tendency. When we're comfortable, when we're good, when life is like we, we have built enough defenses for suffering never to touch us, like there's a warning that you can be around spiritual things and still have no share, right? That, I mean, in a lot of ways, for those who, and I say this church, I try not to be too light about this, but there is this element that even in this room, Judas had Jesus physically wash him, the real literal Jesus, right? Wash his physical feet, and yet he didn't have a deeper spiritual, real transformed cleansing happen, right? Isn't that scary, right? When you read the Bible, there's so much talk about people that in ritual are far from God, that they actually use religion to run away from God. They use every tradition that they can come up with to give them false assurance when, when the God of the Bible is like, you speak all these words, you do all these things. I know what's really going on. Come to me. And it's interesting that it ends on that. I wish he didn't, but Jesus, he, he knows. And so in a lot of ways for you, if you're struggling in here, I think some of you need to hear the word of assurance 
But I think for some of us, I think there's a word of warning not to assume. Especially if, if we're in a, a season of abundance. Um, I guess the last thing that this kind of text pushes us to, and I really want to be careful, is as much as this whole humbling of Jesus points ultimately to his cross, right? In the same way it talks about accomplishment, it also talks about example. Um, let me just be real with y'all. Like, I think sometimes at church, we, like, to be biblically faithful, right? We can talk about accomplishment of Christ so much that we can mute the example and call of him as well. Now, I, I say that because even though it's 100% true that we need the accomplishment of Christ on our behalf as sinners, this text is very clear that there is a very real expectation that as disciples of Jesus, we ought to emulate our Savior, correct? Doesn't mean we're going to replace him, but it means that there's an example set here, right? And so that even when we come to this text, right, we see that Jesus shows his kingdom is not about reigning through dominance, but through humble service. And if you have your Bibles at verse 12, as we continue, it says this, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said, do you understand what I have done to you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly again, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And verse 17 is really key. If you know these things, blessed, peace, shalom, blessing are you if you do them. What is the relationship between Christ's accomplishment and the call of our life? I think in the washing of the disciples' feet, Jesus not only shows the necessity for the deeper spiritual cleansing that only he can provide, but I think it also demonstrates the type of posture he calls his disciples to follow. And in a lot of ways, I would say it like this. I think Paul says, for freedom, right, Christ has set us free, right? So here that you are free, you have been set free. And then here's the question. This is such a deep question when we were talking about Mephibosheth. I can't even say that name, right? All the way back then, one of the youth in their small groups asked this, right? The whole sermon point was that in Jesus, you have a seat at the table of the Most High God. You have the presence of God, full access. Isn't that amazing? And one of the youth's questions in small groups is like, that's amazing, that's cool, but what do we do when we get there, right? And to me, it's, yes, amen, the accomplishment, but what is it? What do we do, presence? It's like, it's like Jesus has done all the work and laid all the work ahead of us, right, so that we can have this relationship, and so what does that even look like? And so I think Jesus is trying to tell us that the cross, of course, and foundationally accomplishes what we could not without him, but it is also our call, that the cross is the accomplishment of Christ, but it's also the call of Christ. We read Romans 12, 1 through 2. It said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Meaning that the way that we define worship according to this is do we have in our lives a posture of John 13? Because 
more than our voices, it is whether our lives have postured ourselves to absolve us of our rights, to lay aside every privilege, and whether we have done that for the sake and blessing of others. That is spiritual worship, both in the church and outside of the church. I think about those who have gone before us, the fact that we're meeting here in 2020 is the direct fruit of those who have done this before us. Every pastor here, every person I think here has seen an image of someone who has done this in their life that has made it possible for us to still open up the word and worship corporately. I'm reminded of the Sunday school teachers in second grade that had no idea what their work was doing what it would accomplish. I remember pastors who are long retired, some of them have passed away, who got up every week and I wonder if they struggled to see what the fruit was, they were just faithful. I, I think about, for a lot of us, an immigrant story of what our parents did to even allow us the opportunity is what they would call a luxury to attend church on a Sunday. That's my dad's words. I think about just all the different things that historically had to happen for us. And really, it points us to the example that Christ has, that his accomplishment on our behalf is reconciling sinners to a holy God, and it is also a path and road and way to which he calls us. In John chapter 12, verse 24, it said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of weight of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And to tie this all up, how is this type of life, because it's hard, how is this even possible? How is it possible for you, if you have a leadership position in your work or your home or just in general, or even just a sphere of influence, how do you lay aside your rights and privileges when it's gone bad for you in the past? And it says, researching, this quote kind of came up that kind of summarizes, I think, a lot of this message. It's by the, the German theologian Bonhoeffer. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And he goes on to say this, but it is only because Jesus became like us that we can become like him. That's where the power lies. As a church, more than anything else, what draws and compels the outside world to ask themselves whether there is more in this life, I don't think resides in our charisma, our resources, even though those are all important. Like they're really important. But it lies in the fact that whether they've seen an example of those who have gone before them, laid aside all their preferences and said, for the sake of many, I will lay down my life for the sake of you. And I think when they see that, they see a small shadow of the ultimate reality that is the cross. And it's what we want them to see because that is our only hope. And that's where the power is. And I pray that as we move forward, May it be not just a message of, hey, go serve other people, but it's more like, this is the posture, this is the heartbeat. This is not behavior modification, but this is the, the, the us that Christ has died to set free to. And I pray that that would be true for you and I. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you, God, that you have sent your son into the world to die for sinners. But that by your death, you can call us clean. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free to something so much better. We thank you, God, that you, even in chapter 13, you announced that your kingdom comes through service. God, may you unleash the power that is in the cross to emulate what you have done for us, for other people, so that they may join us in our family. We thank you, God, for your son. We pray everything in his name.